Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Emily Vanconet. Today, we're welcoming Dr. Sara Kamali to read from her new book, Homegrown Hate, coming in April from University of California Press. Before I introduce Dr. Sara Kamali, I just wanted to remind you that Skylight Books offers curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. Um, and then we're uh, also open in store as well. Uh, Dr. Sara Kamali is a holistic justice act activist and a scholar of systemic inequities, white nationalism and militant Islamicism. Her work examines how interlocking institutions of power oppress the many while maintaining systems of privilege for a select few. She is the author of Homegrown Hate. Please welcome Sara. Hello. Hi, Emily. I'm sincerely delighted to be with you. So happy to have you. And I believe you're going to read from your book, uh, Homegrown Hate. Yes. All right. Let's let's have you take that over. E pluribus unum, recognizing our common humanity. Ours is a crucial period for the homeland security, economic prosperity, and social stability of the United States. The distances across identities, including religious, socioeconomic, and political strata, have never seemed more expansive. The United States has always been replete with contradictions, simultaneously calling for liberty while taking away the freedoms, freedom of its citizens, espousing equity while minoritizing black and brown Americans, professing justice while institutionalizing asymmetrical oppression. And at present, the United States is teetering on the precipice of choice between light and dark, constructive and destructive, to empower all equitably or to bestow benefits upon only the few. For the religiously minded, God will judge. For the atheistic or agnostic, history is the ultimate arbiter. It is both a moral imperative and in our collective self-interest to make the choice to benefit from holistic justice, which is for all, rather than to wreak mutually assured destruction by collectively disavowing one another. In the final analysis, it is only by fully recognizing our common humanity that we will be able to strive toward mutual peace and prosperity on this planet we all share. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, so yeah, so now we're gonna chat a little about the book, Homegrown Hate, which is coming out in April. Um, and I'm curious, you know, you you work so much in holistics in this idea of like holistic studies and, you know, 
whole holistic care, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I'm curious how you got into that or um, what even the roots of that kind of that work are in. Well, holistic justice is actually a concept that I came up with and I termed myself um, because after studying so many movements, both within the United States and across the world to see how people have been oppressed over time, not only because of skin color, but because of ability, because of age, because of national origin, because of language, because of genders, uh, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, et cetera, all the facets of identities that people have um, and how people and how those identities have been basically exploited uh, to, to either oppress or, or, or confer privilege on few people and oppress many people. Um, I was interested in how to apply this understanding of power dynamics essentially and what equity means and what justice means across different movements and what that means specifically for counterterrorism. So the concept of what I call holistic justice is essentially um, looking or based on empathy and also this other concept I call anti-oppression. And what empathy is, is really understanding how one's person, one person's oppression is very, can, can create a sense of connection to another person's oppression. And we've seen that, for example, with um, the very tragic incidents the past few weeks. So we've had the, the um, attacks on attacks in uh, Atlanta, as well as Boulder, Colorado. And essentially the targets were different. Um, one was very much motivated by anti-Asian hate and the other one, well, we're, we're still, that's still to be determined. Um, but essentially, you know, how does the anti-Asian uh, movement correspond with the anti-Black movement? What can we learn from these? And then of course, you know, indigenous communities are often left out. So it's essentially a way to understand how um, people who are oppressed can create solidarity with each other without having to rank each other. And then the uh, anti-oppression is essentially looking at, well, what are the roles of each community? So we know that white people, particularly, or people who are deemed white, because that's a fluid concept, but the people who are deemed white very much have a certain amount of privilege um, in terms of being able to um, go into spaces that people of color cannot and, and enact change. And they're very much in, in positions of, of, of political power, economic power in order to make the changes to uplift people of color. Um, so the concept of holistic justice is really the outcome of um, many years of being involved both on the ground and in the classroom. Um, you know, thinking about these issues and then also being involved with communities who are very much affected by different types of oppression. Absolutely. And I, I think that's such a great way to, to look at it and this great combination of like on the ground work and academic work. I think it, it does a good job of kind of bridging that gap, gap that exists so much in um, applying like theory to what's happening um and i love kind of um implementing that sense of emotion as well and like implementing empathy um so i'm curious um what do you think of the this book is so much about homegrown hate i mean the title homegrown hate it's about white nationalism um so where do you see that that lack of empathy coming from these people who are like committing these terrible acts like you were just talking about 
What's the origin you mean for their lack of empathy? Or just like, yeah, I mean, what's the the um, the mythos, the the ideology? I think we we know some about it, but I think there's oftentimes in the media it seems, or at least in the liberal media, we seem very alarmed by this this type of um, attitude of this type of hate. So I'm just curious what you have found in your work mm-hmm. about where this hate comes from or yeah well racism and when i say racism i mean the idea of people of color being less than somehow subhuman is both internalized by individual people but also very much supported by state institutions and so i think that that idea of institutionalized racism is become very much part of certain aspects of national discourse within the last few years um, because of movements like Black Lives Matter and also perhaps a little more media exposure and push by um, grassroots activists to call upon that. But in terms of what fuels white nationalism specifically, um, there is there is a confluence of things. So there's not one silver kind of magic bullet that if one aspect can be addressed, then we eradicate racist hate, you know, within the United States or around the world. But essentially, it's it's, it's looking upon another person and and either through religious justification, either through socialization, um, uh, either through media or a combination thereof of of understanding somebody as being less than and subhuman and not equal um, and not deserving of the same rights and recognition as, as oneself. And so and that's the ultimate power dynamic. Then you have, so that essentially is what white supremacy is, that being white is right, being white, there's a there's a there's a rightness, a, a, a neither a God-given, um, a God-given special special qualities and um, blessings that are given to white people. Um, and also if people who are not necessarily religious also believe that there's a cultural biological component to white supremacy. And these of course can be in combination, it's not either or. Um, and then there's a concept of well, people of color are actually challenging us and, and, and persecuting us. And there's a sense of, it's actually called white genocide. So it actually has its own name. Um, and there's this threat by people of color and by people of color, I mean, anybody who's deemed to be not white. So that can depend on the group, but pretty much black, indigenous, Asian, um, Latino, um, even Muslims, even though Muslims, a lot of them are white, um, Jewish people, uh, again, same thing, they can be considered white, but a lot of times they're not by these uh, white nationalists. And it's, they're, they're either going to um, outnumber us or they are targeting our cultural and economic and political institutions, um, or there's a combination thereof of those two ideas. So it's this idea of, well, actually white is right and somehow genetically and, um, and religiously superior. And then there's the idea of people of color actually um, putting us under attack. Mm-hmm. So it's this interesting dynamic. As far as the recent cases go and how, um, you know, that's to be determined, but what we can say is that there's definitely a level of misogyny that comes into play. Um, and that's also part of white nationalism as well as militant Islamism. And um, and there's an interesting dynamic in terms of how women both perpetuate 
these um, ideologies of violence as well as our targets of the same violence by these, uh, by these ideologies. And um, it's very complicated, as you can tell. That doesn't mean it's not solvable. It just means that we are going to have to have a much more nuanced point of view in terms of understanding both recent attacks as well as putting everything in historical context. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I do want to return to that kind of intersection of militant Islamism and um, white nationalism, since that's such an important part of your book. But first, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned briefly is like, yeah, whether or not like how many white nationalists there are and I think um, and like how much power they have. And I think looking at um, like the January 6th events at the White House and at the Capitol are a really interesting display of that, right? Like that, um, yeah, that like a, such a small amount of people can have such an immense amount of power. So I'm curious, um, yeah, what, how, how do you think that uh, represented white nationalism or, you know, this idea of homegrown hate that you are speaking on? The events of January 6th were very much representative of white nationalism um, and the, the threat that white nationalism poses to the United States for a variety of reasons. Um, first of all, as we've seen with the Unite the Right rally, the Unite the Right rally too since um, 2017 in Charlottesville and then the subsequent ones um, even around the nation, um, we can see that there are a whole, um, swath of different organizations that were represented both at the Capitol and that make up white nationalism today. And even though they may not necessarily point by point agree with each other, but they very much agree with is the need for the United States to be a white ethno state um, in order for their own um, racial identity to survive. Now, also what is so interesting um, about and interesting, I mean, just from an academic standpoint, of course, this is all very scary to many people, as well as a legitimate national security threat. So I'm not trying to diminish that by saying interesting, but I think probably maybe better term is compelling. What is so compelling is that white national, the, the, um, the composition of people who were present at the Capitol on January 6th and taking part in the Save America rally were white men who were middle-aged primarily. And also there was a large proportion of people who are either ex-military law enforcement or who are currently in military law enforcement. And that is something that the um, under the new Biden administration, of course, the Department of Defense is currently grappling with and how to deal with that. And that's been a longstanding issue within law enforcement and um, military. And what we have to understand too is, and that's something that I very much um, take pains to detail in the book, is that it's not just uh, militias or it's not just um, you know proud boys or oath keepers there's a lot of different groups with a whole history of decades if not centuries within the United States who have created networks over time all um, spurned on by by social media and a lot of the organization um, in planning for the January 6th attacks were done in coordination and um, over social media over the period of weeks, if not months. So that's also an interesting component that makes slightly different than perhaps what we've seen in the past, like with um, Oklahoma City bombing, for example. Yeah, definitely. 
I think that's interesting too, in terms of like, if you think of like it on a global scale um, and thinking about how we consider militism, especially with like Islamic militism, um, like a byproduct of war or like being adjacent to these very highly militarized areas, like looking at Israel and Palestine or like anywhere in the Middle East or even looking at like parts of India and there's like all these very deeply entrenched military things that then create more militant ideologies. Um, but it's curious that it's like happening over social media and that like this military network is less since we haven't had a war here in how long, like it's more underground. Do you know what I mean? That's so interesting that you that you look at it that way. Um, so on the concept of war and the reason why war is actually in the title is that people have really never Okay, I don't want to say people have never let go of the civil war, but the civil war is very much a recurring theme amongst a lot of these groups. And if we look at the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, that was born out of or given rise during the period of reconstruction post-civil war. Um, that was really much about the the you know the the lack of Civil War was very much about denying human dignity, rights, and recognition to, to enslaved people. Right. So it's interesting that you mentioned that um, the, the places in we associate perhaps here in the United States, particularly in the media and certain aspects of the media, militant Islamism is seen as something that is that's the result of um, more uh, militarized uh, nations. But in but for a lot of the white nationalists here, civil what they see currently um, is 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 a second civil war, and that's something that they very much either see themselves part of currently or that they would like to see again. Yeah, so that there's a certain narrative within white nationalism that never let go of this of this idea of conflict and war. So um, I'm wondering what you actually think about that no knowing that now yeah i you know it's like when i i drawing that line between like the the global thing and i i do know that like in my deep down but i just hadn't thought about it on that level that yeah that makes sense then you're like building arms for the resistance and it seems you know you're doing it for a cause and i think again if you're comparing like it to the kind of larger less like military organizations not organized by the country itself right like we're talking about military operations happening by the people mm -hmm. um i think it's interesting oh, i just lost my train of thought but i think it's interesting in terms of like yeah like they have white nationalists or yeah white nationalists have this idea that they're like building for a revolution that is noble in a way so I'm curious how you think that compares kind of to like what we deem as terrorists or, you know, those those kind of rules that fall into like what makes a terrorist a rational actor or an irrational actor or like that kind of rhetoric where to people not participating in that ideology, it can seem, you know, without reason. I, oh, okay. So what seems without reason? Oh, just like, I just mean, um, sorry, I'll backtrack and like make it less complicated, I guess. Um, it's okay, I'm listening. My, no, 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 my question is just like, uh, just that like, if 
what like what defines a white nationalist in terms of military power like and how like as we see all the time in the media when attack like something like in Atlanta happens or like in Colorado like what makes somebody a terrorist versus a white nationalist versus just a lone man with a gun you know like if we're not looking at these larger networks that they're a part of yeah those are all really great questions um and the reason I'm asking follow-up questions is honestly to make sure that I'm addressing your um your questions right <laughs> okay um, it's not because you're you're it's not because of lack of clarity or anything yeah. on your um so the, legally there are different definitions of terrorism and this is something again that i discuss in detail in the book because the legal definitions really might very much impact our understanding and our as in you know just people on the ground being affected by news um and the general public's understanding of terrorism but to simplify it terrorism is an act of violence that has a political aim. And there's the rub because political aim, what does that mean, et cetera. So there are, are many definitions of terrorism, but if we look at certain attacks, they can be considered um, hate crimes, but not necessarily terrorism attacks. Uh, then of course, with the um, killings of the members of the Asian American community, um, there was a, even a debate whether or not those were in fact hate crimes. And so it seems like this era of misinformation, disinformation that we're never going to actually agree on anything, um, including definition of terrorism. But what white nationalism is, is an inherently militant ideology that sees violence as necessary in order to bring about a white ethno state. Whether that white ethno state is just part of the United States or whether that's transnational, so it encompasses a lot of different countries, or whether that is um, people of color being um, part of a, a, a subclass or an undercast uh, under system, essentially, or they're completely annihilated and exterminated, all of that's depending on who you're asking. But essentially, white nationalism is wanting a white, na uh, white ethno state in order to protect white cultural and racial identity, as well as the number of white people in the United States and around the world. Totally. Um, <clears throat> what, when you say transnational, like what do you see, what trends do you see where that's happening? Oh, everywhere. Um, so if we look at QAnon, for example, which I consider white nationalism, um, part of the conspiracy theory element of white nationalism based on the, um, the aims of the group, and how it's very much um, part and parcel, or it's rises part and parcel of Do Donald Trump's presidency. Um, those, you know, QAnon adherents are found all over the world. Um, there are different divisions of different groups that are in communication with each other and also different affiliations um, of different uh, the paramilitary strand of white nationalists who are engaging in planning and um, in communication with each other across basically, or I should say primarily um, you know, between Australasia, the United States, North America, North, Northern Europe and Western, Western Europe. In places that very much see them, uh, there's 
populations that see those particular parts of the world as having a either a divine claim or a political claim or both um, to uh, to whiteness. So the land, there's a concept of blood and soil, which was um, popularized by Nazi Germany. And it's essentially saying that because of our genetic superiority, we have claim to this land mass. And we saw the same kind of ideas um, coming to fruition in 2017 in Charlottesville, the first Unite the Right rally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long have you been been working on this book now? Like what what <laughs> I'm so curious with like I'm like it's obviously like in the last like five years, there's been so many incredibly public cases of, of white nationalism. So I'm curious how far back you're drawing from and like, yeah, how you build this kind of thing. Yeah, thanks for asking. This, I have been writing this book since 2009. I know. I have many, many iterations. And the reason it's taken so long is not because of laziness, actually. Um, I don't know what people um, think when they hear 10 plus years. Um, and it's uh, it's for a variety of factors, but um, the, the primary factor being the complication and the complexity of the constellation of white nationalism that I said, if I, if I put my name to something, if I put my name um, to a book, I want to make sure that I get it right. And I want to make sure that um, I, um, I wrote the book that I wanted to read and I wish I had it as a resource. I'm, I'm blessed that I was able to write it myself. Um, but essentially it's taken so long because um, of the depth and breadth of white nationalism, as well as even within the last um, two years, for example, um, well, I would say that President Trump's president, the the presidency of Donald Trump, has how 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 the groups have become um, much more visible in the public sphere during Donald Trump's presidency, as well as um, I would. I would say um, perhaps in the national discourse discussed as well. So I wanted to, um, um, th this book provides the resource to understand the depth as well as breadth of white nationalism today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as well as yeah. Islamism, quite frankly, but you know, given the events of January 6th, it's also interesting to see how that has, how the, how the dynamics of what people are interested in in terms of the book have changed as well. Right, of course, it's it's probably, do you feel like it's being a lot more, I mean, our whole conversation so far, I feel like has centered mostly around white nationalism. Yeah. Is there um, something you wanna speak to more about the the militant Islam, Islamicism aspect of the book? Yeah. Um, that there are a, a great deal of parallels. And I think it's worth looking into, um, as the book lays out, you don't have to read the book from, first page to last page, you can choose a chapter and it's meant to be very much in a resource um, and hopefully an engaging one uh, for readers. So don't feel like you have to pick up the book and then read it from first page to last or else you're not gonna understand it. If there's even just a section, I break up the book into different parts. And if there's even just one part that appeals to somebody. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of the parallels, which I found quite early on, um, because I've been studying terrorism actually since since I was an undergraduate student, um, that there is a remarkable um, remarkable simil similarity in terms of the narrative of victimhood that perpetuates both ideologies, and 
it's very much interesting to see how both of those are the narratives of victimhood are both um, both contingent upon different dynamics of American policy. So for white nationalists, it's very much domestic policy that adds actual legitimacy um, to their claims. But then for militant Islamists, it's American foreign policy um, that adds legitimacy to their claims, specifically the different wars in Muslim majority countries, as well as the, the um, lack of closing Guantanamo Bay and, and the, the um, human rights violations there. And it's, um, also interesting to see how the human rights violations and, and, and during wartime has added legitimacy to the militant Islamist claims. And it makes it a bit murky in terms of, well, as if you, if, if, um, if somebody is against, if somebody is against the, um, if somebody's against the torture that happened at Guantanamo Bay, does that make them militant Islamist or does that make a militant Islamist sympathizer? And of course not, but, it's interesting to see how militant Islamists um, and American militant Islamists as well have have um, exploited these types of narratives in order to in order to um, publicize their message, gain followers, and and gain support. Yeah, totally, absolutely. And again, I think it kind of circling back to one of the things you were saying at the top. I think it's this really both groups, both white nationalists and um, <clears throat> uh, militant Islamists, both kind of have this sense of empathy that's very strict to each other, or like just within these these very strict groups and doesn't extend to, to groups outside of it. So it's like they look at these policies and see them as like, not at all, just like direct attacks on them. Yes, exactly. And I'm nodding vociferously because that's what's so interesting. And that's, um, I don't want to say I keep writing about the book, but geez, it did take me 10 years to write it. So I mentioned a lot of these points. Um, and what's really interesting is that despite the parallels, that they don't necessarily see each other as, as um, they don't necessarily have solidarity with each other. And that is also a really interesting dynamic that, um, that uh, it was worth exploring for me too, because we have the whole crusaderist um, imagery and these very, so white nationalism was very much overlapped with Christian identity, which is, which is a, what I call a racist theology, a racist religion that very much peaked in the United States in the 1980s. And we have this whole um, idea of white nationalists versus militant Islamists in the crusaders ideology that doesn't necessarily let them allow them for to get together and then wage mutual war against the government there there's a whole islamophobic comp component that is that is um that is um that white nationalists depend on in order to gain followers, but that militant Islamists also depend on this Islamic Islamophobic rhetoric by white nationalists in order to gain followers too. So it's this really interesting, compelling dynamic that um, that I hope people people pick up on and try yeah, to understand. Totally. 
And that really just points to how complicated everything is. And again, that doesn't mean it's not solvable, but when we think white nationalism equals racism equals Nazi Germany, that's not really what it is. It's much more complicated and every country will have its own context in, in terms of how white supremacy um, is, is made part and parcel of the law. And I really hope that people who, who choose to read the book um, try to understand how white supremacy is, um, was is sub, continues to be supported by whatever whichever country they're they're currently living in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, you think it's 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 interesting too that people want to immediately just compare it to Nazi Germany, not like the U.S. has <laughs> not been committing atrocities for its entire existence, and not like it's not founded on you know destroying an entire group of people and stealing their land, but like you know. Exactly. And I remember how controversial that was too. going through. So this book had to go through peer review and how controversial that was just for people to read and get comments on in order for the book to even go through the process. Um, and now, of course, it's well, it's become part of um, the national dialogue, whether one, you know, and, and, and changing school curricula, et cetera. But these conversations have been have been around for decades, if not centuries, in terms of how do we decolonize things and how do we refocus and recenter our storm our stories and then the Amer American history on people of color. And there are a lot of great and and also just as much as I would like people to understand the context of white supremacy, I would also very much like for people to understand how groups over time grassroots groups throughout American history and throughout the histories of many countries around the world have um, formed come together in order to in order to um, demand self-determination and empowerment and dignity. This mm -hmm. is not new. Yeah. All well, of I think are not new. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the idea of like, yeah, like reframing history is one kind of very like soft way to counter these threats what are some other ways that you you see as a way to options to counter these kinds of threats that's a great question can i can i ask you a question myself yeah so we go into this whole countering um aspect of, of our conversation yeah. um were you familiar um were you familiar with um such groups in the United States before January 6th. And the reason I'm asking you is because I get a lot of um, questions about, well, we didn't know about this before, or it really was something that um, was really surprising. So I'm not- um, No, I was like, I was aware of QAnon and um, like, I, I'm from the Midwest and I have like, I'm from the city. So it's not like I'm like from a very conservative place, but I, like over the last two years, I've had my friends start being like, yeah, I hear like things at my more conservative workplace be like talking, like I have coworkers who believe in QAnon and like yeah. all this stuff. So I think there's been like hints of it. Um, I also like <clears throat> worked um, on a campaign in 2016, so mm -hmm. uh, in a swing state. So I definitely ran into a lot of people with a lot of the same opinions for sure. So um yeah, parlor was a new concept to me, though I hadn't heard of parlor. Okay, and that's that's because social media, the way that it changes, evolves, and morphs is is very very fast. I think, mm -hmm. and relative to other types of you know technology, whereas you know, we had newspapers, etc. I think social media lends itself to to that kind of um, amorphous tracking. But um, as far as the Midwest, I don't. Um, 
I don't subscribe to that stereotype of Midwest being a certain way. And also there's really great literature out there going back to my academic self, there's really great literature on communities of color within the Midwest and, and also um, uh, people anywhere can su subscribe to QAnon, et cetera. It's not just, you know, urban equals, I don't know, white, right. big cities or something. So just for anybody listening out there, it's a lot more diverse in a lot of different places than you would think. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so in terms of countering, what are the actual things? So, you know, it's interesting that you say that history seems, reframing history seems like a soft approach, because I would, I would argue that um, rewriting- I mean, I mean, soft in a, sorry, just really quickly. I mean, soft in like a soft power way, not in the like hard force way, like- Oh, you mean like, like it's like- violence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, not like it's, I think it's an incredible thing to do and not to say that it's like without hard work. I just mean that it's like, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't subtle, you know? Right. Yeah. And I, okay. I would argue that it's actually not subtle and it's one of the best things that we can do in this country mm -hmm. uh, in order to counter, um, counter white supremacy. And there is a whole history of, whole history of quote-unquote educational violence inflicted upon people who have never learned about people of color in this country. So in a way, violence is used in, in academic circles and ivory tower circles in different ways and all that stuff, but it can be quite revolutionary, I would say, and it is revolutionary to center Black and brown people's histories um, in history books, and we're not doing that enough for a variety of reasons. So, and that's part of the whole empathy aspect in order, so the, the thing, the, the concept of holistic justice that we um, started the conversation on and that I end the book on um, is very much, is very much, uh, centered on the idea of uplifting and empowering communities to understand not only their own histories and their own, within their own contexts, you know, United States and other countries, but also to understand the histories of other communities of color, as well as white communities. Because if people don't understand, um, you know, it's not just about, oh, well, that community is oppressed or that community faced victimization, but what kinds of, you know, leaders did, did, did they have and do they have? What were their contributions? What is their food culture, et cetera, like? And there's, of course, so, so many different um, combinations and dynamics. It's not just Asian, Black, Brown, Indigenous, et cetera. We know that, you know, people are much more, are much more dynamic than that. Um, and I would hope that people start to engage and look at history um, and as well as the current time as living history and see how um, they can contribute positively to uplifting these stories as well as people who are currently living. So there's always this dichotomy, it seems to me anyway, there's this dichotomy between, you know, history of the United States and stories of color, but then if people it seems to me again that forget the current, you know, do you, how many people of color do you know? Do you, when you watch TV or media or streaming shows, are you engaging with, you know, different outlets? Um, who are you reading? Where are you, you know, studying? What kinds of questions are you asking? There's all different ways of, of imbibing and, um, and uplifting uh, different stories. But in terms of actual education curricula, that's why it's been so contentious. The um, critical race theory uh, was, curricula was completely shot down during the during Donald Trump's administration for this reason because it is it would call for a revolution of 
um, empowerment and dignity. But in terms of the other stuff, there needs to be a complete overhaul of current counterterrorism paradigm. And we can go into that or not, but um, really when we think, and that's, and that's something again, I, um, when we think about terrorism, and for anybody who's listening, think about who is a terrorist who, what do they look like, and why don't you know any of the names of the January 6th attackers? Yeah. Of course, I only know that one guy who went to jail and then asked for organic foods because it like got memeified, you know, like right. all the all of them became memes in a way. Exactly. And that's really a lot to do. We have to hold the media accountable. And if we look at media, a lot of journalists of color, you know, get stuck on specific beats. Um, there, there's not a lot of, um, you know, throughout an employee life cycle, throughout the cycles of where people work or people don't work nowadays either, um, and how people are engaging with media um, at all different levels. It's not just having, you know, the the, the person of color is a reporter or or the the black anchor for example it's you know about having different voices and different um, uh, viewpoints um, represented uh, at different levels throughout an organization um, as well as you know the the stuff that we're actually consuming and choosing choosing to consume yeah absolutely so for anyone who's listening who might be you know, kind of in that, that position of having people in their lives who are white nationalists or, you know, subscribe to some of these ideologies. Do you have any tips or I don't know, like anything that might, mm -hmm. um, or even like words of empathy perhaps? Yeah. Cause that can be a hard way to carry to, to know that people in your life are stuck within this ideology for sure. Mm -hmm. I would say don't do not have the expectation of converting anybody to think how you do. And also that goes hand in hand with sincerely seeking to understand. And that's what I mean by empathy. Empathy does not mean condoning. Empathy does not mean supporting. Empathy does not mean joining in, but it's sincerely seeking to understand why another person thinks the way he, she, or they does. So perhaps a good question would be to ask of the other person, of a white nationalist or a QAnon adherent, for example, you know, if you're thinking about that um, in particular, um, you know, can you explain to me why you think the way you do? Just because I'm really wanting to understand and maybe preface that in however language works for that person, but you're going to have to speak the, the, the language of the person without any expectation. And I think that's what's also um, a huge dy uh, dynamic in terms of fracturing the, the political landscape and the unity of this country is that people understand themselves to be right and other people to be wrong um, without allowing for that nuance and shades of difference. And I think if people really sought to understand each other's points of view um, and, and based on, on a place of respect, um, which I call for, and that doesn't necessarily mean agreeing to, that just means saying that, hey, you're human and I'm human. And in that turn, that way we are equal and um, deserving equally of dignity. Um, 
and recognition of each other's humanity, then we can start a conversation from there without the expectation of another person believing or thinking the way that I do. Absolutely, that's great. Well, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today, um, Dr. Sarah Kamali. And then I just, do you have any last thoughts you wanted to share? Well, firstly, I wanted to thank you, Emily, and thank your team for um, such thoughtful questions. I, I sincerely appreciate your time. And I can see that you um, are caring and engaged with the world in a, in a very important way. So that's, I appreciate that very oh, much. Thank you. And honestly, I, I would just like to share good wishes with everybody. I know it's a very difficult time. And um, it's a very difficult time to concentrate as well. I, I, I simply wish for everybody to, to be healthy and safe and, um, and work towards continuing to, um, to recognize that we're part of one human race. I know that sounds a little hokey for this time, but, but you know, essentially a lot of each of us have, I think a lot more, um, we're able to impact each other's lives in a way that I hope the coronavirus has, has taught us that we shouldn't take that ability to to impact each other's lives for granted because um, uh, yeah we, we are I think we're much more important to each other than we realize absolutely yeah that's so yeah thank you so much for sharing thank you for telling us all about your book um dr sarah kamali her book will be out in april you'll be able to get it now you'll be able to pre-order it um from skylight so if you head to her website you can find it there um and yeah it'll be out in april yes sorry yeah. april april 6th actually. april 6th to be exact Right. I was having that moment where I was like, is it April 6th or April 9th? What has my brain done? You know, just turn the number upside down. <laughs> so I didn't want to say it, but yes, it is April 6th. Um, yeah, and you can pre order it now via www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you so much for tuning into Skylit, uh, the Skylight Books podcast. And thank you again to Dr. Sarah Kamali for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.